Welcome back to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Kato David Hopkins. Hello, David. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, David has just written a wonderful book about Hijokaiden called Rumors of Noizu, Hijokaiden and the Road to Second Damascus, and uh, also runs Public Bath Press and the Public Bath label since, what, 1990? I think 89 is the very first thing we did. Nice. um, But there's a long gap in the middle where I wasn't doing anything publicly, so I wasn't bathing publicly. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Well, why don't we just start with it? How and when did you start Public Bath, and what was the impetus to start Public Bath? Um, all right. I first went to Japan in 1979, and uh, I didn't speak or read Japanese at all there, although I had been a lifelong record collector. I was just a kid. I mean, I was 25. Um. I guess 25 as a kid, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was a, a record collector, and uh, so I quickly found out the, the cool record stores, because I, but I didn't know anything about um, good music. And there was um, a record store specializing in imports in Kyoto. I live not too far from Kyoto. And there was a, a guy who ran the store had a little bin of Japanese indies and he would, he would recommend things to me and uh, his, his taste was impeccable and I liked everything he did. So I kind of, I kind of got into the music from the record side, not from the live side. And a a few years later, I had a whole year in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, it's a complicated story about why I went back to the U.S. For, for a year. But I was in Madison, Wisconsin for a year. And Madison had great live music scene. And I went, when I went back to Japan in 86, um, I was actively seeking out the live underground music. And that's whenever I discovered uh, noise. I, that my, that my friend at the record store never recommended noise records to me. Some friend. Yeah. <laughs> there was a club in Osaka called Eggplant. And deeply connected with alchemy um, people. And it was uh, basically um, rehearsal studios with one studio being a very large room where they could have live shows. And their shows were eclectic, to say the least. You could have on the same show a hardcore band like SOB or... um, a psychedelic band like the Folk Tales, and possibly even a noise performance. And there would there would be jazz too. So even on the on the same bill, all different mixes. Well, of course, there were sometimes they would have all punk shows and so on. But mm-hmm. and that's when I got exposed to uh, pure noise for the first time. And what, uh, and what what band or 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 artist was it? I'm think I'm thinking that I actually heard Soul Mania before I heard uh, uh, Hijo Kaidan. Wow. But, uh, but of course, cool. I knew about Hijo Kaidan, but Hijo Kaidan were also scary. 
At the time, for sure. As I, mean, as I just read about in your book, which was a wonderful description. Like, I guess I, you know, that era was, you know, something I wasn't familiar with. So I, I, I never thought of them like that. And just to hear about those live performance, it was really uh, flooring. Well, and I think for us having seen, I mean, we you know we've seen them and yes, we've seen so yes. many shows in the past, you know, since the late nineties for the three of us that it's almost hard to think about a time when it was actually scary and, mm-hmm. and it was this unknown thing that you, again, just like the, the title you heard rumors about, you heard yeah. this band who like, urinated on stage yeah. and through fermented beans and fish. And you're not aware of how yeah. far they're prepared to take it. And I think that's the element, um, that that really is that draws us in especially yeah and so when you were in japan in in 1979 now were you at all aware of these coffee shop type shows that you talk about in the book the 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 play the drugstore and the minor was with were those places familiar to you or no mm-hmm. no i um mm-hmm. i i went to music coffee shops but none of them had live performances and and they again had fantastic record collections and very knowledgeable people. Wow! And if if you and they and they did specialize, so that if you wanted to hear a particular record, you might have to wait for three records for your selection to get on, onto the turntable. But so yeah, I did go to those uh, those coffee shops, but none of them had live performance. Uh, the, the, I, that's some of my favorite stuff in the book. Thinking about just going there and. You just to listen to records. I love the story where I think it was uh, Makawa goes to to, because he wants to hear the Guru Guru LP. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And another another character that's important in the book is a woman named Yase no Kyoi. She's more from the Daigoretsu side, but she had the same experience that she was going to a rock uh, coffee shop that I also did go to called Mm -hmm. Niko Niko Te in Kyoto. And she met a guy there who's, who uh, who introduced her to drugstore. Okay. And uh, as as a place that would have um, something even cooler and perhaps more obscure than what they had at Nico Nico Te. So now, of course, that that shop was run by hippies originally, who seemed to disappear sometime in the nineties, uh, sometime in the seventies. Sorry, and the shop still kind of struggled along on a minimum budget and with unclear ownership. But um, so that the idea of naming a drugstore was provocative hippie naming, but I, I don't, I've never heard anybody saying that they use drugs there. <laughs> <laughs> so 86, you're back in Japan. You start getting exposed to noise as we know it. Soul mania, Hijo Kaiden. Yeah. Had you always wanted to start a record label? No, no, that was that was completely as a paying them back for welcoming me into their scene. Um, the original intention was to do something like Discord with only Osaka bands. But uh, once we started, a lot of bands suddenly found that they were able to get um, releases with other indie labels. So we expanded pretty quickly to have non- Osaka bands also, but it was com- the complete motivation was to I- introduce my friends to 
the audience that they deserved. <laughs> wow. Now, the public bath releases that I have have the uh, oh, Madison, Wisconsin address on yeah. them. But you were living in Japan yeah. uh, all the time while running the yeah, label, I had, right? I had a partner from Madison, yeah. Okay. How, how did that – were you curating and handling the pressing over there? Was that handled here in yes, the States? Yes, completely completely that way. Okay. That was that was Betsy Bath. And, uh, and she had health problems that got more and more serious. And um, so that's – I didn't have a partner there anymore. And I tried uh, a different partner in San Francisco, but it wasn't – wasn't fun so, ah. so it sort of just let it uh, that that second partner wanted to make it more of a business and i really thought of it as a service <laughs> that uh, should pay for itself but i wasn't particularly profit oriented so you can see all the public bath um, releases are very cheaply printed and that's so that we can afford to give the band 100 or 150 copies of every record and still make enough money to, to roll over into the next project. Awesome. Was everything being pressed in the States or was it pressed no, in Japan? Pressed at Rainbow. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. But you, but you, were, were, you were the curator. Yes, I, I, I chose all the music, yeah. And... Were you in Osaka at the time then, when you went back to Japan? Well, um, I, I actually live in Nara, which is on a, like a triangle of Osaka and Kyoto. It'll be the third point of a triangle. So I can go to Osaka or Kyoto in about one hour from where I live. Hmm. And I have mainly lived here. In the mid-80s, I rented a, a small, cheap apartment in Osaka also. So I could stay out late after the train stopped running. So <laughs> one artist that I certainly associate with Public Bath would be I, Hanada Rash, yeah. Boredoms. Uh, for certainly the first time I ever heard Hanada Rash was the Public Bath C D. Mm -hmm. And it was it was cool because it was available. You know, like you know, there I got it in a record store in Chicago, whereas some of the, you know, a lot of those other earlier ones were long out of print by the time you know, I, I was coming around to them. I think we made. I think we made three thousand in total of the Hanukkah CD. Wow. Exactly. And so I, you could get it. It was around. Yeah. How did you team up with with I and Hanadarash and Boredoms and, and? Well, I, I, I met I at uh, Eggplant probably, and uh, and he was also a record collector, and uh, so we had a lot to talk about. And he was a very friendly guy, actually, not not the least bit hard to approach um and uh so you know we, we hang out a little bit and i i never saw the hanaturashi uh, wild live shows um the bulldozer show and so on so it's actually a backhoe i think um i never saw any of those wild shows but of course i knew who he was and the boredoms uh, were suddenly suddenly went from a, a sloppy, a noise project, that, but that that wasn't a very interesting one. And suddenly, when I guess it would be when Yoshimi joined on drums, and they had a sense of rhythm, they suddenly became a very very interesting new kind of uh, basically rock sound. Um, and I was I was there around that time, so 
and spending, wow. uh, spending some time with uh, I and, and Yoshimi. And I and Yoshimi were living in Kyoto. And they got so huge at one point. I mean, they were on huge. a major label. Yeah. What do you attribute to their rise, I guess? Well, it's just chemistry of the people, I think. And that the 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 original boredoms is I and whoever he wants to play with. And there are a lot of other little experimental versions with different names, but basically they were boredom projects. Um, Alice Saylor was a collaborator sometimes. And of course, uh, Tabata Mitsuru was uh, on the, the trans uh, boredom single. And uh, a lot of different people coming, coming and going. And I don't know what... One, one thing I said to me is that whenever, whenever he wanted to make a band, what he wanted it to sound like was the way that all those um, uh, 70s uh, psychedelic band live albums at the climax, at the end, whenever they do the krang, the, the last chord, and then the guitarist goes wild and noodling up and, up and down the guitar, and the drummer is flailing away, and the bass player is zoop, zoop, zooping on, on his bass and so on. He wanted to make a band that only did that part. <laughs> That's not unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, you have to be able to play your instrument to do that stuff. Mm. And uh, Alice, Alice Saylor and I are not instrumentalists, basically. So, although I've seen I play keyboards and guitar, he doesn't really know how to play. You know, it's not necessary to know how to play well to play interestingly, but but uh, Yamamoto Seiichi coming in on guitar and Yoshimi coming in on drums made them um, much more musical and capable of that kind of uh, climactic, orgasmic sound. You know, I think I do think Masana said the same thing. Uh, that was something that he looked for. And wanted to keep that level, and that's why his his sets are so short. That he wanted to keep that intensity level, never let it even drop. You know, uh, you know, well, they used, they at used all. to be longer. Uh, oh yeah, he, yeah. He came around around eighty eight or eighty nine, I guess. And when he ref when he first appeared, there would there would only be five people at his shows, and uh, and uh, I was one of them, and uh, he got. <laughs> Higashi Seto-san of Forever Records was another one. And uh, there's the guy who did Mondo Bruits, um, Iwasaki-san. Oh. Uh, he, he's, he's, he died in a car accident um, mm -hmm. later. But yeah, there, we, we, lo we love him. We're our, huge fans. Our, we're huge fans. R.I.P. I mean, one of, one of our and, absolute favorites. And Nakajima from Obe. Of course, and again, oh, R.I.P. Yeah. It's so sad. So, like the same five or six people <laughs> showing up at every show, and uh, early Mazona, he actually often appeared with an acoustic guitar, and smashing up his guitar was a part of the show. And uh, so, wow. it took a lot longer than than two minutes to smash a guitar. <laughs> but um, and he quickly became accepted as uh, one of the noise elite. Wow. And you saw some of those early, you were there. Oh yeah. I saw all the early ones. Yeah. Wow. I can't I, imagine what you have seen in terms yeah, of yeah, shows. Yeah. We can, yeah, you can just, just list the shows you've seen. Yeah. And we'll just drool. My, my ears are drooling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a signed 
guitar fragment. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> did you see how, how early did you see Merzbau? And how do you say Merzbau? We That's actually a thing. So many people say his name differently. Yes. Well, I, I, Merzbau is very much a Tokyo unit. Mm-hmm. So we didn't come down to to Kansai to Kyoto or Osaka so often, but I probably began to see Merzbell also around eighty eight. So is there is there a divide in Japan as far as where you're from and and or at least back then in the eighties is was there a geographical divide that did prevent people from seeing bands from other experimental regionalism? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say yes, very much so. This is also part of the rumors of Noise Book is that the, the Kijo Kaidan were known by rumor in Tokyo. And so when they went there, they had to be even more extreme than they ever were in Kansai to satisfy people who had only heard the rumors and imagined something um, more extreme. So, um, yeah, and. Uh, Opportunities to play for indies uh, units were quite limited. Um, this is one reason that Eggplant was a very important club because they could they could uh, um, had a big enough space and they could arrange a place for the bands to stay and so on. So a lot of Tokyo bands would come down to play at Eggplant, but it's always been always been tough. And the underground is small, and the noise underground is is the smallest. Um, although I have seen. A few hundred people at a Ujo Kaidan show, that's a lot. And I really appreciate you talking about Eggplant because I've seen that on, you know, so many liner notes. And, uh, you know, I, I assumed it was a recording studio. I assumed it was a space like, but, you know, truly, uh, I didn't know what it was. I think the building <laughs> was actually a warehouse. And... Um, and I don't know if there were terms in their ability to use the building, but they, it had a big lobby in the front with a vending machine that had beer and um, as well as other beverages. And they had and straight in the back was the big hall, which was easily big enough to hold 300 people, maybe even maybe even more. And then off to the side were, were practice studios that um, uh, you could rent. And because they had practice studios for rent, they were open all night. So wow. if you went to another show or went out with other friends or something and you didn't want to go home yet, you could you could go to Eggplant and there'd be musicians hanging around in the lobby and there, there was beer to drink and you could buy the, their their machine didn't have a clock on it. So you could buy beer all night. <laughs> and, um, so it was a, it was a great community center. Wow. And it's so rare to have something that large. Yeah. Or am I wrong? Yeah. Wow. Well, have you ever been to Gilman Street? You know, we, I've actually never been. Have you, Gray? Nope. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I've actually never been there. It's a, it's the, the hall was about the same size. I know uh, we know of a le- legendary show of Sol- Solmani. And, yeah. Like and, we've read about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause I know <laughs> they play there and so did Hijokaiden, I believe. Mm-hmm. The place it sounds like or conjures up in my mind is uh, Rubber Gloves in Denton, Texas, which is also sort of practice spaces with a venue and bar attached to it where people people gather and you just kind of know something's going on there, I guess. But having never lived in Texas, I also don't know the day-to-day vibe there. 
Um, so to go to Solmania, Solmania in the late 80s was, Ono-san was in a psychedelic band called the Folktales. And, and they were, they were good and, and a lot of fun. And he's a, he's a terrific normal guitarist. But he had been doing this uh, tape project on his own and not as a live performance for a few years. I think since he, he was an art student, I think since he was in university, he had been doing this uh, tape project called Soul Mania. And I don't know how he made his tapes. They're, they're very interesting noise tapes. But when he started to do uh, the live performances of Soul Mania, he had these incredible bizarre customized guitars mm-hmm. with with a neck coming out in a strange direction and drone strings attached to stretched and 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 the interesting thing was that he would have three sets of pickups on the guitar and they would each be run from run into a different amplifier and so that whenever he moved in the space in front of the amplifiers the the feedback danced around and it was uh, astonishing uh, visual and sonic performance and uh, I think it'd be at the time that was my favorite uh, pure noise performer wow and now now he's he's with Katsumi Sugihara Katsumi who was a punk rocker and they both play noise guitars but they stand facing the audience and uh, um, they still make some interesting, crazy sounds, but uh, that the visual aspect is is not part of it now. I love his design work. If he does a CD, I know it's going <laughs> to yeah. be my favorite. I love or, Solmania's or design. a book cover. <laughs> Which, or a book cover. That's right. He's so good. Yeah. Yes. He's done most of our uh, book covers, and if you wondered about the book cover for Rumors of Noise, that uh, the pattern on there is Damascene fabric. Yes. So, so picking up on the second Damascus. At, well, actually, Tara did notice that because she, she I got actually, really excited and I got out my book on Damask. Yeah, she actually has <laughs> a book uh, about. Yeah. And she's like she was very excited. Yeah, about so that. I was just thought I should read it while I was reading this. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's amazing. And his we the diagram of one of his guitars in an issue of banana fish uh is one of our favorite things and did you do that interview or translate that interview i probably did i'm not sure (laughs) well which i guess would lead us how did you end up uh hooking up with seymour and banana fish and do a lot of those translations well um i'm not sure where i first found banana fish but it was through banana fish and he, he was the only person doing anything like this. I never met uh, Ron Lassard. And um, um, I, so there, I know there were other people doing experimental noise-related uh, music and supporting that scene. But somehow or other, I, I, maybe I read about Banana Fish in Fact Sheet 5 or something. Very possible. Um, I, I'm not sure, but I, I, I got a copy of it and I loved it. And I started to correspond with uh, Seymour. And uh, I think the first one I did was the Hanatarash interview. And then I did, you know, Hino Mayuko and 
which is oh, one my. of our favorite interviews. <laughs> and we, thank we, you for that. Yeah, that's that was it was actually yes. that interview in particular when we were yeah. we need to get so inspiring. You on yes, because yeah, we 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 love her. We love CCCC. You go to eggplant. You see Soulmania. You you get excited. But where what was your path to be in a position that something like that would? You know, you it was it made sense to you at the time. You know what 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 were you what were you into in 1979 when you were collecting records, leading up to seeing, you know, noise proper. Um. Yeah. So I'm of a generation that was influenced almost equally by progressive rock and punk rock, even even though those are pretty nearly contradictory. Urges. Well, I think maybe the, the same is true for noise artists. They are also from listening to both of those uh, musics. But um, and I also listened to jazz. Uh, and this was I didn't. My friends in college before I went to Japan. I, I went to Japan pretty much right after grad school. And my friends in college and grad school did not listen to jazz at all. So that was my sort of secret secret thing <laughs> and i think that really pr pretty much uh, prepares you for the the love of improvisation in japan so of course progressive rock has improvisation and punk rock has a uh, style and uh, performance but not so much improvisation um the J japanese you know cons considering that the, J the image of japan is strongly conformist uh, the Japanese actually love improvisation. And uh, so I think I was prepared for it from thinking of it as a, a way of bringing some jazz concepts into more or less rock music, although it, it becomes something else. So I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. But I recognized right away that this was something new and 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 different and that everybody ought to know about it. <laughs> Well, I haven't been what? to shows in the last several months because they tend to be in basement rooms, and uh, and I, I I think I better avoid that space right now. So, well, are there even still shows? That's there impressive. Are shows. There wow. are shows, but they pretty much limit them to like twenty or thirty guests by reservation. So that there are people doing it, and there are online shows, but I, I don't, I don't find that very interesting. That, um, for me to watch online is watching on like this computer here, which is uh, about the size of a. I don't know whether it's a fifteen-inch or eighteen-inch screen, and my actual television is is a great big TV now. <laughs> yeah. So, so watch, watching on this little small screen is just not. I don't get, I don't feel involved. Yeah. Without the loud, like PA and everything, even with a nice stereo, it's there's, and without a crowd and without the, the smells and, and even the uncomfortable aspects of being at a show, it's not, it's just not the same to me. The, the, the shared experience, the loud volume and all that stuff is at home. You can turn it down a bit at home. You can, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, at home you can, you can check out in different ways than at you, a, you a can performance pause it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, I have to pee. Let me go. Well, in your book, you said, um, at one point, um, can noise be noise without the aggression? And, you know, is, is there some element of aggression or chaos that is missing from a show that is virtual? Yeah. Probably. Um, yeah. That's, that's very, very true. That, that, 
the physicality of it. I think the the last the last show I saw was Sekijo Kaidan in March, before I stopped stopped going because of uh, fear of disease. And um, you know they're they're not young anymore. But this was this was Junko and Mikawa and uh, Okano on drums, and Jojo. And there there's lots of motion, even though they're not as wild as they once were. Uh, there are a lot of things to look at in a Hideo Kaidan performance. And Mikawa has all these toys lined up in front of him, and you don't, you can't, of course, know what sound is coming out of which one, and, and except by looking at what he's doing. And and Jojo really plays uh, the noise guitar wonderfully, and the drumming, of course, is um, uh, Okano is basically a psychedelic hard rock drummer background, but he has a educational drumming tape on how to play drums with no rhythm and uh, and that's what he does and so he's full of ideas and a lot of things to look at there also so what can i can i get that tape (laughs) i I think it's from alchemy (laughs) oh wow okay well what was noise record store culture like in japan because we've heard of a lot of these places that that are sort of noise shops around there and I'm I'm certain you've probably been to all of them. <laughs> uh what can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, they come and go. Um this is a kind of a very small specialist shop that usually when they open they have a fantastic collection and they have difficulty keeping the standard up and people stop going and they go out of business. So there have been a lot of them over the years. Then one of the most important ones in Osaka was called Disc de Soleil. And uh, they had really good connections with the European art music. And so, uh, of course, the, the noise underground in Japan really wanted to have their records in that shop. And uh, so that was a place that you could have lots of new discoveries. And again, all the, all the people who run these shops, we call them the master. All the masters are uh, knowledgeable and, uh, and they want to share their knowledge. But, you know, important thing about a Japanese record shop is the walls are covered with records. Is that there's everything that you can see in the store, everything that enters your vision is for sale. Wow. <laughs> there's no wasted space on posters and things like this, usually. It's the records are, are the posters. Um, it's, it's a very good design sense. And of course, Japan has problem with space. There's too many people and too small an area, so they use the space very efficiently. And there's, sometimes there's only enough room for two or three people to fit into the store, but um, everything that you see there is used well. So, uh, Forever Records, in you guys set this on one of my oldest friends. I've known him since the mid-'80s also. And his record store is uh, also just packed to the rafters with uh, stuff and it's all for sale. But he's also, um, he also inherited uh, the collection of Nakajima from Ob, who who died. He was an extremely heavy smoker. And uh, <laughs> from his family, he, he got his whole collection of uh, records and tapes and, and a lot of them have uh, nicotine stains on the spines. The room, the room he was in was so smoky at all times. 
and that that eventually did kill him. We 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 have heard we have heard about this collection legendary the the nicotine stains Mm -hmm. and that they are all in the store. But I I can only and and I'm sure there's still lots of incredible stuff still in stock. Oh God, yes, yeah. And there there will be more releases coming out from there. I think so. Have you ever had to downsize your record collection? Oh, I have a separate building at my house for my record collection. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, I know. I can't that. imagine what's maybe, in it. Maybe we'll have to do a, uh, so, when we start doing video, we'll have to do a virtual tour <laughs> someday. That's Do you organize amazing. by genre? What's your system? What's your, yeah, what's your organizational system? Um, well, I, I should explain that professionally, I'm a, I'm a teacher of American cultural history. And uh, I teach at two universities, and um, there's a strong. I basically, I teach um, from the modern era to the present, so from like 1890s to now. Oh, and so, yeah. so the I, musical history is a very big part of what I teach. So, I have a whole lot of 78 RPM records. Also, um, I have wind-up Victrolas and. And things things like that. So I have I have well I haven't I haven't counted them, but I usually have twelve thousand records. You have taken comprehensive to a whole I, new level. I, I love, love it. it. I love it. <laughs> well, um, that's my job. So yeah, well. <laughs> we just doing the podcast helps us justify all the noise we buy all the time. It's great. Any yep. purchase we feel every like purchase, making, we're yep. doing it for the podcast. <laughs> so it's it is your job. You have to get those records. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you have to have a good way to play them. And I, with the publishing company, okay. I I don't pay myself a salary for doing the translations or doing the writing, but any research expenses are paid by the company. And the, and the the company is, you know, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not losing any money, you know, and I haven't I haven't had to put any of my own money into it for a long time. So it, it the profits from the previous books, and they continue to sell, and I continue to keep them in print. Um, they pay for the next project, and so actually translation. If you hire a professional translator, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm doing it for free for the company, which is, uh, uh, if I think about it, that's maybe not, maybe it's an unfair advantage that most people cannot <laughs> cannot get a professional translator to do their work for free. So, but other there's, there's some some scholars like um, James Dorsey at Dartmouth and um, Michael Bourdage at uh, University of Chicago who. Or interested in Japanese pop music, they expressed amazement that I am actually making enough money to keep the thing going. Because their 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 impression is that people are just not interested in Japanese music. But I, I assure them, it's not true. And, uh, and JoJo told me once that just about anything that Hijo Kaidan puts out, they can be sure to sell. 1,500 to 2,000 copies in, in the whole world. And wow. at least ha- at least half of them go overseas. And this isn't your first uh, published book on Public Bath either. You you wrote the Dokiri book about right. Japanese pop music, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Well, um, 
it's it's more of a guide. There's uh, it, a very common kind of book in Japan that's a, a musical uh, book that's kind of like a catalog or a dictionary. And it's just a, a list of a bunch of records with a, a paragraph about each one. And that's that. there are a lot of those. And it would be easy to get permission to uh, translate something like that. But I think the problem is that for people who cannot read Japanese, understanding context. So I needed to put it into a narrative form and introduce some of the backgrounds uh, culturally and, uh, again, regionally, differences between Tokyo and Osaka, for example. And uh, so that's what I came up with. It, it's I, I still have some of the first printing, so I haven't thought about doing a second edition. But um, I would I would change some things if I did it again now. I, my knowledge has, has gotten a little bit better than, than it was. And I've taken some criticisms from some people that I overvalued some parts and undervalued others. So I might change it a little bit. But it's, it's a guide to uh, the early days of independent music in Japan. Wow. Yeah, how thrilling is that when you get a catalog in your record? Oh, it's the best. The idea behind the the rumors book, which is which is really cool, it's the it's the road to Second Damascus. So while it's not a Hijokaiden biography, it's it's the biography of the beginnings and leading up to the first record. Well, I would I would argue that the the no, and I think maybe the book does argue this that nobody really knows what noise is until Second Damascus comes out. Mm-hmm. And that the Hijo Kaidan side of the Shumatsu Shorijo uh, record is a noise record, but the other side of the record is not. And and there are other people, the Daigoretsu people, and other people using the word noise for a kind of music that, or kind of sound, a kind of performance that today we wouldn't recognize as noise. And this is why this is why I emphasize the spelling difference. Mm-hmm. So that there is such a thing as noise. If, if I walk down to the station and the train comes in and, and the brakes are squeaky, that's noise. But it's not noise performance. So um, Jojo once told me that, in fact, I think this might be, he might have said this during an interview with Seymour in San Francisco that I was translating. He said that the music that uses elements of noise is still music. And and noise that uses elements of music becomes music. So it's only noise when it's only noise. As a theory of, uh, of noise, I think that's been very influential for me. And we didn't know what it was. And so there, there are a lot of people doing experimental music and using machines and, and so on to... Uh, to create new sounds that people hadn't heard before, but I don't. I don't think we really knew the concept of noise until JoJo sat down and selected the noisiest parts of the mm-hmm. noisiest shows, and said, "This, this is noise." So that's why the road to Second Damascus. And of course, of course, for anybody from a, a Judeo-Christian background, you know, Paul and the. The road to Damascus is something I'm playing with. I don't think that Jojo or Mikawa really understood that reference when I talked about it with them. 
because they don't come from a Christian background, but the idea of uh, the uh, Satori-like experience of the voice of God in the desert uh, telling you to stop doing what you're doing and, and reform your ways. Um, but in a sense, the Jojo does exactly that, is that once he finds this, uh, Jojo has his uh, free Hijo Kainan recordings which will mostly be on uh, those Daigo Retsu tapes, they're not noise. And he can play guitar, and uh, he, he even sings sometimes. So he's... The, the first meetings of the group that grew into Hijo Kaidan were they were planning to do a, a band that sounded like Hawkwind. Which I love. I yeah. love that. that was the plan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, their intention was musical. But whenever he discovers, when he has this Satori experience and discovers what noise is, well, that becomes his, his purpose in life. Although there are um, solo performances sometimes where he sings now. Oh, really? And, play, and, plays, and plays acoustic guitar. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, you know, and again, it's it's, of course, mapping history of music. There's always... Uh, you know, other points where, you know, maybe you could say this was kind of the beginning or this was kind of the beginning. And because, I mean, even around this time, Masami was doing Merzbau, there were tapes, but it wasn't what we think of when we think of Merzbau now. You know, those it was still something different. Um, of course, you know, he begins as a home recording project also. And then those are tape manipulation and sound collage uh, performances. And um, no, that wouldn't that wouldn't fit under um, the, def the, the NOIZU definition of noise. That would be experimental music or art music or mm -hmm. something like that. And even uh, recognized composers like Takemitsu Toru or Ichiyanagi Toshi were also doing cut-ups and uh, tape manipulation and collage effects. Uh, well within the mainstream, well, not, not, maybe not the mainstream, but well within the accepted academic uh, practice of music. So, yeah, that's that's where he comes from. And I've, I've seen in some place where he said that he really made them because he wanted to have something to trade so he could get uh, um, foreign people's tapes. And then it wasn't so much that he really wanted to make tapes or that he was dying to do these musical experiments is that he just needed something to trade. And so he made them at, at the beginning. I think we've maybe all been there before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just want to get some mail art. <laughs> what do I got to do? <laughs> uh, I, I checked out the, uh, was it Takemitsu Toru? Yeah. Uh, some of the recordings that you referenced in the book. And I was, I was pretty surprised uh, to, to hear that and in the context you give it in the book, I found very interesting because like the one of the pieces you cite is uh, really like heavily sustained piano and very dissonant and quite enjoyable to listen to. And thinking of the at the time at which it was made, uh, how strange even that would have seemed to in a contemporary musical sense, because it is really, you know, not not. Uh, not noisy, but not something you would comfortably put on <laughs> in, a, in a pleasant setting either. Yeah. 
uh, you know, uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen came to Osaka for the expo in 1970, and they had built this. Um, I, I don't know what the name of it was, but a, a, a geodesic dome-like structure uh, for performance, and it had speakers and microphones at different points around the, the sphere, and the operator could could make the sounds come from any point into the audience. So a, a kind of weird holistic listening experience and they played uh, straight up classical music there and Stockhausen used it as an experimental uh, tool and uh, this was also quite influential when he was so busy doing that he was he stayed in Osaka for two the, the expo was six months he stayed about half the time he was too busy to collaborate with any Japanese composer <laughs> and and I don't think that there are any recordings Wow. Oh, that's a shame. But even if there were, you wouldn't be able to get the experience. Right. Yeah, because you're not in the dome. <laughs> yeah. So, and supposedly they were going to build a, a dome like that in Germany to continue this, and it never got built. Something like that. So, anyway, Expo, I mean, this is, this is where, you know, mom and dad take the kids from the countryside to go to see what's going on at the West German Pavilion. And, um, and you could you could experience something like this. It's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. One of our favorite discoveries from the book was the band called Noise. Now, oh, yeah, I had yeah, never yeah. Heard, I had never heard of of this. Yeah, and it is so cool. Alchemy did we we picked up the Alchemy did a CD reissue of it. Mm-hmm. And it is, you kind of describe, I think, you know, organ, a little bit of drums and these just these really out there vocals. And the, just a really cool discovery of, a, of something I had never heard of. And I, I can really see the, you know, this being part of that road, part yeah. of that path to get to what is actually noise. And like you said, I mean, the band is called Noise. It's it's not noise. But it's also not, I mean, again, kind of like Ray was saying, you know, it's, it's also, I don't even know what I would even call it. Cause, cause it, it it's, it's very noisy and it's very, uh, I guess I, it, it is hard to put into words. When did you discover that project? Sometime probably in the early nineties. Um, like a while ago. Yeah. It was recommended to me again at a record store as a used copy. And, uh, and I, again, I thought, wow, what, what, what is this? And this was from, this is derived from the minor scene in, in Tokyo. And Kudo Tori is a brilliant musician. He plays, I think, anything, any instrument. And he's very creative and he's still doing interesting stuff. Um, he is from Shikoku, actually, so very much out in the country. And I'm not sure why he was in Tokyo. And he's he's difficult to talk to. Um, I tried to interview him, but his answers were so opaque that it didn't, I didn't get anything useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also experimenting with the punk rock and all sorts of things at Minor. And Minor attracted um, Shiraishi Tamio, who was a sax, sax player who was based in the U.S., I think. Um, so they had a free jazz uh, clientele also. And so he would cross over 
from the punk rock at between seven o'clock and nine o'clock into the, the free jazz uh, after hours uh, sessions. So he had a really wide background. So I don't know whether this art, art experimental stuff was uh, was going on there or not, but that's that's his background. So very eclectic musical environment in minor. The uh, I was actually recently listening to the Nord live materials, uh, 1980 to 1993 yeah. cassette on Vanilla, and the earliest performance on that set is from uh, May of 1980 at recorded at Minor. And I thought I just thought like, oh wow, like really, really early Nord performance uh, at, at that space. And then of course you see other names in here like Loft and Gospel and things that as Americans we see on some of these releases and, and only have some vague idea about. It was nice to read about the culture around these places and the yes. goings on there more so than like, oh, there was a show there, but what kind of place it actually was and what yeah. kind of people frequented there's it. A, there's a good bit about it in Gasineta Wasteland. From Public Bath Press, um, which we will be putting links up, obviously, on our page, so everyone will be will be uh, going to pick these books up. As we highly recommend all of them. Uh, that one's almost sold out, so I, I need to have it reprinted, but um, I will. I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten all the money back from uh, Rumors of Noise yet, so I can't afford to reprint everything. <laughs> but. And okay, so everybody it. has to buy Rumors yeah, of Noise you, everyone now. Everyone heard it here. Let's and do it. Then <laughs> you can get the and, full uh, context. Free, yeah. free jazz <laughs> in Japan is also sold very well, especially in Europe. So there's a, a, a great desire for more information about what's behind the music. And you do talk about Nord. You 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 know of course mentioned the first Nord record. You know yeah. is that also in your view one of the other the beginnings of what we now know as noise. Yeah, it is, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. And again, uh, although there are live performances, it's hardly many of them. Um, so that the, the idea of performing this music live is always difficult. Can be sure five or six people might come to the show, but um, it's difficult to convince a club that, that you should get one of their nights or their stage to, to do this. Um, the through line for all noise artists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, well, well, it was actually fascinating because we we actually covered the Nord's electronic initiation CD, the one on Kinky Music, and while we were recording the episode, we we had we had reached out to K two, uh, who runs Kinky Music, to ask him some questions about the CD, and he's let us know that that CD was at, is actually live, which we could not believe. Because yeah. it is, it is one. It's so detailed and so it feels so. We the whole time we're talking about how layered it is, and, I, and then we find out, <laughs> oh no, he was doing that live. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think that the early Meritzbau live performances are also quite different from the early Meritzbau tapes. And there were live performances, and Masami is a drummer, of course. Yep. Uh, actually, and so the lots of metal percussion and and drumming. With uh, usually, I think he had a bass player as his main collaborator. But um, the early so there are some early sessions with KK Null, and those are fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I argue in the book, and Masami would be really angry probably to hear this, or maybe he is really angry to hear this that that KK Null pushed him in the direction of what we think of as Meritzbau noise. That the, the earlier stuff is not. Not like that. 
And KK Null, of course, um, his solo work is also pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, and those collaborations are very important, and that live music is very important. Now, I don't know how many people went to see that kind of show. I don't imagine it would be very many. But uh, he, uh, like JoJo, he obsessively tapes himself so that there, there is no waste. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you obviously... Your expertise is is in the is in the Japanese side of things, but were you also at the same time getting into noise, you know, from other parts of the world? Like, were you getting into the haters? Were you getting into the new black haters, or did that did that all yeah. kind of come at the same time? Yeah, I have a whole bunch of those cassettes. You know. um, again, the, the international tape trading network of the early nineties, so. I didn't have anything to trade. I, I'm, I don't, I don't write. I, I had to write essays and stuff like that. You know, I, uh, <laughs> my, my, my job is, is different. So, so I never, <laughs> although I, I did sing on the Omoide Hatava records. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we, we, you know, we have, we, we have talked to GX about, those early, especially the early '80s tape trading days, when he was corresponding with Masami, when he was corresponding with MB, and they would, you know, send these, you know, send the tapes, send the mail art, and it's, you know, something we, you know, we love thinking about and love reading about. Yeah, and, and even MB hosting so many yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, we 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 can't we we can't we can't get enough of it. <laughs> Still. <laughs> we we got a chance to see Junko solo. Uh, last summer, she came Ooh. over for the for the hospital fest, and truly one of the most intense, uh, focused, uh, focused, undescribable things I've ever seen live. It, it was, I think, it was thirty minutes. It felt, you know, and it was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it truly. I think people's jaws were on the floor for, for the entire time to see that. And, and she was just, you know, the whole time she was, she was so cool. She was, she was so great. And one of the best stories I think in the, in the rumors book is the story about her and Jojo meeting and how he, how he met and how they had the, the list with the, the addresses and the, the contact. If I love that. Well, she, she's, she's lovely and she's a lovely, nice person. And um, I, I don't know how to say it without sounding kind of elitist, but she has wonderful manners. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm going to tell you a story about the, that. I took. I went to America with Jojo and Junko, and uh, in we went to California. Must be '94 or so, and. Uh, the first night we went out to a restaurant and Junko asked me to give her a lecture on American table manners. Because she'd heard some places they're different from European table manners and she, she wanted to eat like an American while she was in America. So I explained about changing hands with the fork and knife and um, a bunch of different things about tableware. And, and so I, I also had a very good mannered mother. So I knew, knew all this stuff. And uh, she never made a mistake after that she she absolutely absolutely mastered american manners in one lesson wow 
<laughs> I love that. Well, we were so we were just so impressed with her because I think she was at soundcheck at four p.m. Yes, she was out there until the way end of the night after there was DJs. It was probably three in the morning. Yes. She was just hanging at, at harder minim- than anybody. Minimum you know, of else, ten hours. Yeah, everyone else was fading yes. and and falling asleep, and she was just. She was just going exactly so we, the same level of just like awesomeness, kind, trying <laughs> yeah. to, you know, people trying to talk to her. Um, and she would just sit there patiently, listen yeah. and just be so warm and awesome. Cool. And then when it was time for her to turn on on stage, it was uh, like a force had been awakened. Uh, it was amazing. And everyone stood there and rapped uh, and, and it was quiet. And that's really unusual for a Los Angeles show for everyone to shut up. Uh, just and focus. it was amazing. And she was an art student in the painting course at an art university, an arts university. And I've never seen a painting. And I've heard from her and from Jojo that she made really large scale paintings. And I don't know where they are now. Um, some maybe her family's house or something like that. And she doesn't she doesn't do that anymore. Certainly not large scale. And I asked Jojo for this uh, book if if it would be okay to get a photograph of a Junko painting to use for the cover art. And he said, no. Oh, <laughs> and you've still never seen one. I've never seen one. No. Not even a, a picture. complete mystery. Not That's even, the most even, rare. Not, not even a picture. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Incredible. Because it's not her story. She doesn't even come in until the end of the, until they, they were established. Right, right. That's so true. Maybe that's a little reticence about, you know, giving the spotlight to, to Junko, but I I really want to see the picture. <laughs> yeah, 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 now yeah. we do. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, and she was such an obviously moving after the events in the book, she's such an important part of the band and in, in a way almost the in a way, the image when you think, you know, at least when I think of Hydrokine, I just I I picture her just just going, you know, brutalizing and my we, ears. And we did get a chance to see the the trio, uh, Makawa, Junko, and, and Jojo, a few years ago mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And of course, it was, you know, as as great as we had always hoped it had been. The, it, was, it was the first time we had ever seen. It, it was the first yeah. time you'd ever seen him, right, Gray? Or had oh, you seen him? I saw. Oh, that's right. Hijo Kaiden, Borbido Magus, and uh, Soulmania at the Knitting Factory in uh, like that's I want right. to say two thousand. Wow. Yeah, that's that right. was a yeah. good show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That oh yeah that's right I forgot you saw that that's so incredible. I know we just wanted a show say, like where we just ask you the shows you've seen. Yeah 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 that's really I mean <laughs> like, you could real. just listen I mean seeing those early Masana shows. Well I, I don't I don't know there've been so many. Have you been to Bears? Uh, I'm, you've, I mean for you've sure. Been to Bears. Yeah I mean have you been to Bears? Yeah, I just wanted I, yeah. to. <laughs> I, I I used to live at Bears. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of. Uh, interesting shows and and bears is a small underground basement space and if you if you fit a hundred people in there it's beginning to be uncomfortable so um and but they're always been open for experiments and there was a show there sometime in the 90s where they just had eight guitarists improvising with uh, no pa just using their amps and spread all in a circle around the room and an audience could be behind them or in, in front of them and, and so on. And, and they just uh, jammed for uh, an hour and that included rock guitarists who were actually playing and noise guitarists and 
um, a variety of things. And and the the late great uh, Hayashi Naoto was 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 one of the guitarists at that time who started Unbalance Unbalance Records. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, after the show, some fan came up to him with uh, one of his records and asked him for an autograph. And well, I, I remember at the, at the very end of the show, he had taken a knife and cut all six strings of his guitar. So he's standing there with a knife in his hand and the fan comes up and wants an autograph. He cuts his thumb with a knife and gives a blood print <laughs> on, on the record. So <laughs> Amazing. Beautiful. <laughs> And I'm sure, and I saw, you know, I saw the later later day Hanatarashi was also at uh, at Bears, and um, yeah, I've seen quite a few things. There was a KK No performance that I'll never forget, where he he played guitar, but he had the guitar on the table, and he using lots of toys and so on. And at one point, he had like a large rod. Uh, that was balanced perfectly and underneath the strings and he, he got it going up and down like this so that it, it set up a rhythm and uh, an, an oddly modulated rhythm and then he played with his fingers tapping the guitar without disrupting that rhythm a totally unique guitar performance that i've never seen anybody else do anything like that would wow. be bears oh that's so sick and what was do you, any memories of maybe the loudest show you've ever seen? Oh. Well, I think the, the boredoms with Pussy Galore was, oh, wow. was, was, possibly, was possibly the loudest. Whoa. It was really, really loud. And that was wow. in a place that was a former public bath. So the, oh, acoustics, yeah. the acoustics were uh, not good for music. There's so much echo in there. But, uh, yeah, it was a they, 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 the band set up in the, the old large bathtub places and uh, and played. <laughs> oh, wow. That would be obscenely loud, yes. Yeah, it was really loud. <laughs> maybe, maybe even louder was the Jesus and Mary chain. We've, yes. I've heard that. We, we, I've definitely heard that, that, that those early shows were just brutal. And I took uh, Zenigeva on an American tour, and Zenigeva also damn loud. <laughs> uh, do you have any plans for a follow-up to Rumors of Noise? You mean continuing story of noise? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at materials now. It'll take a long time to, to do it, but I'm thinking about it. How long did this book take you to write? Well, when I finally actually sat down, because of the... Um, going into quarantine, sort of, or or not going out anymore. I wrote the whole thing in six months. Nice. Oh wow! But, but I but I was doing interviews and collecting materials for about a year and a half before that. So altogether, about two years. Okay. And I'm uh, I'm negotiating now to do an edited translation of this book. Oh, cool. Japanese Ooh. electronic music. It's a, it's a doorstopper. <laughs> yeah, that's wow. a big one. The 800-page book. But the bulk of it is long interviews with electronic musicians. Wow. And so those those can all be trimmed <laughs> drastically. So this is a bad time for me to ask you if you're going to translate the story of the king. 
It's the story of, of the story of the king of noise because that's only in Japanese, right? Yeah, and I, I, I don't, I don't really want to. <sighs> we want you to. <laughs> I know. I'm so. Or, or either do you know that, how many or, times I hold Google Translate on my phone? Yeah, to the alchemy liner notes because <laughs> all, all the liner yeah, notes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. We that's that that's the uh, the Google Translate app has been has done wonders with those alchemy liner notes. Even though we know that it's not getting it, and we know it's getting things wrong, but we do get the it's essence. It's like the of it, law of averages. You have to take four translations and then kind of push them all together and yeah. then see what you think it might mean. Yeah, that's the first time I saw eggplant. I'm like, why does it keep saying eggplant? Yeah, <laughs> naked Larrys. Yeah, oh yeah. Na- oh yeah, naked Larrys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For La Raz- Yeah, you understand the meaning of the Hadaka no Dadis. No, the naked naked Larrys. Oh right, yeah, right. Oh. Or, or, uh, we 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 read about we it. it was Lirallyze de Nude. It must have been that instead, because we were just guessing on what was being translated into like naked Larrys. do is a Japanese verb that means to be high. Or intoxicated. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing to do with rallying or anything like that. It's <laughs> it's the 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 um, pardon the expression fucked up and naked band. Oh right! <laughs> oh right! Yeah! 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 <laughs> I, I yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I love it. See, that's why we need you. Yes. We, we need you to translate <laughs> these things. <laughs> well, I met the I met the, the original uh, bass player from the rallies at an event in Kyoto a couple of years ago. I'd never met him before. And uh, he was also very friendly and, and he's a photographer now and surprisingly normal. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. So where can people get these? Who's distributing these outside of Japan? In America, it's a church of American damage in Chicago. Um, Jordan Reyes. That's where we got our copies. Yep. Uh, he's a very good guy. And um, that's my main person. I, I think I also sell to Mast Books in New York. Yep. And there's somebody in, in California, but I, I can't remember the name offhand. Not, not very many copies, like 10 copies. So those, those would be gone by now, probably. Okay. And I, I think I saw Scream and Writhe in Canada had them. Yes, yes. Scream and Writhe has it. Um, Lulu's in Melbourne. Okay. Uh, in Europe, Soundome has them, and Dis- Distra Jazz in Spain has them, and the Wire bookstore has them, and Cafe Otto's bookstore also has them. Great. So I sold a lot wholesale, a lot more wholesale this time. Oh. Like I said, about 400 are already out the door. I haven't, I haven't gotten the money for all 400 yet. But. <laughs> awesome yeah obviously we'll be putting up a link for everyone to okay. I'm, go I'm check it out i'm committed to keeping everything in print so that it's it's never going to be rare <laughs> <laughs> yeah well awesome. we think people should read yes. it and check it out and yes. uh appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about all this it's really really cool my pleasure yeah this is really really cool thanks so much and and we're going to have to listen again and just really improve our pronunciation. So you've helped us a lot there on everyone's name. Oh, wait, wait. And, and is it Masona? Because you, you said it. Is, is that the proper pronunciation? I know we've said yes. it wrong forever. Masona. I'm still going to say it wrong. 
Okay, I'm probably going to still say and Iran. How does, so that, that, that means Mazo, right? which is the Japanese pronunciation directly from the German of masochism. Onna is, means woman. So Mazonna is masochistic woman. <laughs> yes, well, thanks so much. Keep in touch. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years. By Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.